0: One of my favorite parts of my role here at Highland is being part of weddings. It's such a privilege to walk with a young couple through premarital counseling and to be part of one of the most important days of their life. And when we stand at the front of the church or the front of the venue, and I have the opportunity to share one final challenge. I often share with the couple the gravity of the commitment that they're about to make. Because marriage, it's not an at-will contract. You can't just get out of it at any time. Marriage is a covenant. It's a lifelong commitment that the husband and the wife, the man and woman are making together before the Lord, before everyone in the audience, that they're going to be faithful to each other every day of their life. I mean, this is a big deal commitment. And when a couple gets married, their life changes, really their priorities change. They aren't in the prominent place of priority in their life. Their spouse is now in that place of priority. And fast forward a couple of years, misplaced priorities in marriage can cause some significant marital problems. Now, I was reading kind of a depressing article of the dumbest reasons why couples get divorced. It's kind of depressing. It was also kind of humorous. Let me share a couple of those reasons with you. They all come down to misplaced priorities. Here's the title of one article. She divorced me. Because I left dishes in the sink. (laughs) Kind of a provocative title. And when I read the rest of the reason, it it was a lot deeper than just leaving dishes in the sink. I mean, the husband was not putting his wife first. Or how about this? Another couple filed for divorce because the husband wouldn't move out of his mom's house. (laughs) That's a problem. Don't get any ideas, young men. Or how about this? Another couple got divorced because the wife spent $42,000 a year on psychic hotlines. (laughs) Yikes. Or how about this? Another couple got divorced because the wife accused her husband of loving his pinball collection more than her. Uh, Man. Now, I'm not trying to diagnose the ethics of the morality of those divorces. But when we boil it down, each one of those come down to misplaced priorities. And if we're honest, misplaced priorities isn't just a problem in marriage. It's also an issue in our relationship with God. Because when we become a Christian, when we embrace Jesus, he doesn't just become our Savior, but he's also our Lord our master, our boss. We're not in charge anymore. And when we follow him, we embrace a whole new set of priorities that we're living for him. We're not living for ourselves anymore. But if we're being honest, it's really easy for us to revert to a Sam-centered, a me-centered life, trying to follow our own set of priorities. And this isn't a new problem. This isn't just unique to us. The Israelites had the same problem in the Old Testament. And that's exactly what our prophet tonight, Haggai, talks about, misplaced priorities. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Haggai. Again, don't be embarrassed if you have to look at the front of your Bible to look for the page number to find Haggai because you're going to scroll right past it. It's just two chapters right before the New Testament. Chances are you've probably never read it before and that's okay. We're going to dig into the book of Haggai tonight. But the context of what was happening in and around Haggai is very crucial for us to understand what was going on. Remember just a little bit in the history of Israel, 586 BC, the Babylonians come in. The two southern tribes, Judah, are conquered by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, and he takes away all the people as captives and takes them hundreds of miles to the east and a little bit to the north to Babylon, which is modern day Iraq. Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, they were not nice to the people that they conquered. They used wrath and just they, they punished them in, in strange ways. They used brainwashing. I mean, they weren't nice to the Jews. And the Babylonians, for a couple of decades, were the most powerful empire in the entire world. But things started to change around uh, 540 BC. Their power waned, and there was another man named Cyrus, the king of the Persian Empire, who was gaining control and and, uh, gaining power throughout the world. And in 539 BC, Cyrus did something that was pretty cool. He diverted the entire Euphrates River, so that his, na- his army could just waltz right into Babylon and they conquered the entire city uncontested. So now Cyrus becomes the king of basically the entire world of the Persian empire, but he has a radically different approach with the nations that they've conquered than the Babylonians did. Cyrus decided that he wanted to kill the people they've conquered with kindness. He was really nice. And he thought, if I can get these people to like me, then things are gonna go a lot better with my kingdom. So in the first year of his reign in 538 BC, He issues a decree that the nations that had been conquered, they could actually go back to their homeland and they could worship their own gods, which was amazing because the Babylonians weren't even close to letting the nations they conquered do that. And we know this is actually historically true. Maybe we can show the picture of the Cyrus cylinder. This was found recently. This is the decree by Cyrus telling the nations that they could actually go back to their land. And Israel's not mentioned in the cylinder. Maybe it's in the piece that's missing. I don't know. Uh, but we know that Cyrus gave the Israelites permission to go back to their land from Ezra chapter one. And Ezra is kind of a, a contemporary of Haggai, talks the narrative portion of, of Haggai's sermon. So then the people with Shesbazar, I mean, what a name, Shesbazar. He's is the, the governor. He leads the people back to Israel in 538 BC with 42,000 Israelites, Jews, and takes them back to begin repairing the land and they start to rebuild the temple, and they lay the foundation for the temple, and and then they build an altar. But then their neighbors, the Samaritans, say, hey, we want to help you guys build the temple. And if you remember anything about Jews and Samaritans, they did not get along. The Jews hated the Samaritans. So the Jews said, there's no way that you're helping us rebuild the temple, which really ticked the Samaritans off. So they decided, okay, if you're not going to let us help you, then we're actually in a fight against you. We're not going to let you rebuild the temple. And their persecution, their opposition was so intense that the Jews decided it's not worth it. This is too much work. We're just gonna throw in the towel and we're gonna stop rebuilding the temple, which to us doesn't sound like that big of a deal. Why did the Jews need a temple in the first place? But we have to be careful not to look back at the Old Testament with our 21st century lens because for the Jews, the temple was crucial. Because for us today, we're God's temple. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. Paul writes that in 1 Corinthians. We don't need a church. We don't need a building to worship God. But that wasn't the case with the Jews because the temple, it wasn't just a symbol of God's presence with the people. The temple was God's presence with the people. That's where he dwelled. That's where he resided. So for the Jews to come back to the land and to not rebuild the temple, the place where they could worship God, the place where they could sacrifice, I mean, that was a a massive spiritual failure. It did not make God very happy. And they left the temple unfinished. For over a decade. So God raises up a man named Haggai to come and inspire the people, empower the people, convict the people that it's time to put God first. It's time to rebuild his house. A lot of background. Let's follow, follow along with me as I read Haggai 1, 1 through 5. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month of on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, to Joshua, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Now, those are the two most powerful guys in the land at the time. They came back some 16 years earlier with Sheshbazar. And now they had grown up and they became, one was the governor, one was the high priest. They were the two that were in charge. Verse two, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time is not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Now that we understand the background, the history, this makes just a little bit more sense. You just see what the people were saying in verse two. They're saying, the time's not yet come. In other words, the, the persecution, the opposition, the, the oppression, it's just too strong. So it's not God's will. It's not time yet. It, it, it's not the right time for us to try to rebuild the temple. There's just too much opposition. So they threw in the towel and they said, Wow, well, God's closed the door. I wonder how often you and I have used that same excuse. When something's hard, when we face opposition, when we face persecution, we use the line, ah, it's just not God's timing yet, or God has closed the door. For some reason, Christians like to use the phrase, the phrase is open door and closed door. I think sometimes we over-spiritualize a little bit. It falls in that category of Christianese sayings that we don't always know what they mean. But I think we've got to be careful not to over-spiritualize an open door and a closed door an opportunity in our life. Maybe I can illustrate it with a story. When I was in college, I had the opportunity to serve as a RA, a resident assistant, um, which gave me an opportunity to kind of do some low-level counseling um, with some of the guys within the dorm. And there's one guy that asked to, to meet and to talk, and, and he was struggling deeply. He was suffering deeply with same-sex attraction. And he was kind of at a crossroads and wasn't quite sure what to do. And and didn't know if it was okay for him to act on those desires or not. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, you know, if God opens a door and brings another guy into my life that I love, that I fall in love with, then I'm just gonna pursue that relationship because if God brings him in my life, then that's obviously what God wants. See what he was doing? He was over-spiritualizing the idea of an opportunity, over-spiritualizing the idea of an open door. But friends, that's a very dangerous way for us to try to discern God's will. Because what we find in God's word, what we see in scripture, always has to inform what doors we walk through and what doors we don't walk through. But in contrast, I love how the Apostle Paul thinks of open and closed doors. So He says this in 1 Corinthians 16, 8 and 9 but I'll stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has been opened to me and there are many adversaries. (laughs) You see what Paul's saying? There's a wide open door for ministry for him to stay where he is and there's opposition. It's almost like Paul is saying because there's opposition, because there are adversaries, because there's people fighting against the advance of the gospel, he knows he's right where God wants him to be. And I think sometimes you and I have a tendency to run away from opposition, to run away from persecution, that when life gets hard, when obedience is just overbearing, we think, ah, now God's just closed the door. But sometimes when we're facing oppression and persecution, we might be in the exact center of God's will. And that's our first principle. The first thing I want you to write down in your blank tonight, God's plan is not the path of least resistance. God's plan is not the path of least resistance resistance. Walking in obedience was not easy for the Israelites. (laughs) And if we're honest, walking in obedience is not necessarily easy for for us either. It's far easier just to give into that sinful temptation than it is to resist. It's far easier for me to just keep clicking the snooze button in the morning (laughs) than it is to wake up And spend time with the Lord. It's far easier for me to bite my tongue, to keep my mouth shut, to not share the gospel than to step out on a limb and to share the gospel with a family member or friend that desperately needs to hear it. Walking in obedience is not an easy thing. And if you and I are only walking in obedience when it's easy, if we're only walking in obedience when there's not opposition, then we're going to live a life of continual compromise. And that's what happened for the Israelites. They were only obeying God. They were only rebuilding the temple when it was easy. But that wasn't the only problem. Not only did they choose the easy path, but they also chose the wrong path. Let me reread verses 4 and (laughs) 5. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses while this house, the temple, lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You see what God is saying guys, what are you doing? You're out there building these beautiful, elaborate, stunning homes for yourself. And my temple isn't, it's it's broken. It's destroyed. It's just a foundation. You have your priorities all messed up. They were saying my house is greater than God's house. They were saying, yeah, I'm gonna get my house ready for Jerusalem's version of the parade of homes. Well, I'm not gonna worry at all about getting God's house ready. They put themselves in front and they put God on the back burner. Now, if we contextualize that for us, it's not quite the same because God hasn't commanded you and I to go build a temple. We're not going to be traveling over to Jerusalem trying to build a temple on the Dome of the Rock, the Temple Mount. Probably wouldn't be a wise idea. But when we understand the underlying principle, I think the application is pretty universal. And it's just two words, God first. God first. That's what God expects. That's what God desires of his people, that he takes that place of prominence, that place of authority, that place of worship in our lives. And this isn't something that we just see in Haggai. It's not something that we only see in the minor prophets. It's not something that we just see in the Old Testament. It's something that we see all throughout scripture. I think of what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things will be added to you. Well, think of the second half of that verse. What are, these, what are all of these things that Jesus is talking about? Well, think of the context of the Sermon on the Mount right before verse 33 in chapter six of Matthew. Jesus is talking about anxiety. He's saying, don't be anxious about anything that God's going to take care of the the sparrows, he takes care of the lilies of the field, then he's going to take care of us. We don't have to worry about what we're going to eat. We don't have to worry about what we're going to drink because God's going to take care of us. So then he says in verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. In other words, seek God's priorities, run after obedience, and then all of those other things, God's going to provide them for us. God desires, Jesus desires that we seek him first, that we put him first in our life. And that's our second principle tonight. God's path is not marked by culture's priorities. God's path is not marked by culture's priorities. (laughs) We live in a world where culture's priority is self, is me. We live in maybe the most individualistic society, self-centered society in the history of the world. You go to the bookstore, you go on Amazon, the self-help or self-care genre of literature is maybe the, one of the biggest today. It's actually doubled in its profit since 2013. And it's often labeled as an invest in yourself, a personal investment. But in some ways, it's just kind of a, a me-centered approach to life. Or think of it this way. I think of the king, not the king of England, but the king of basketball, LeBron James, Some consider him to be the greatest basketball player of all time. I'm not trying to pick any fights with MJ fans. I'm just saying what some people say. But it was reported in January that LeBron spends a million and a half dollars a year on his own health, investing in his body. Now, I'm not trying to discern whether that's a good or a bad idea, I mean, if you're going to try to play basketball into your 40s in the NBA, you probably need to take care of your body. And since I'm not going to be doing that, which I know is surprising, then I'm, I'm far more concerned about making BRICS investments than personal health investments, but maybe that's a subtle hint of where we should go when Young Adults is done tonight, but that's beside the point. <laughs> but we like to use that word investment, and sometimes it makes us feel a little better about theirso- ourselves. Ah, I need to invest in myself, so I need some extra sleep tonight. Or, I had a really bad Monday, so I need to invest in myself by getting some Starbucks on my way to young adults. Or, ah, I, I need some self-investment time, and I'm going to take a, a vacation. I really need it. Now, are any of those things wrong? No, certainly not. But we have to place those things in the right priority. God first, and then we follow underneath. We need to put God first. And as God's people, he desires that we have the right set of priorities. Really, the right priority is him. And when we have a misplaced priority, God's not thrilled with our behavior. So with the rest of our time, I want to talk through how we can put God first in three different areas, how we can prioritize him in three different areas of our life. But before we do that, we've got to make sure we're all building on the same foundation, because if we don't have the priority straight, then it doesn't really matter with kind of the tertiary things in our life. We need to build our foundation on the gospel. Because each one of us have to come to a point in our life where we understand that we're sinful and that we so desperately need a savior that we could never save ourselves. Crying out to Jesus, as Paul says in Romans 10 9, confessing with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, believing in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then we will be saved. Each one of us must cross the line from death to life, crying out to Jesus for salvation. That's the most important decision we can make. And when we believe in Christ for our salvation, when he becomes our Lord and our savior, then he becomes our priority. And when we have that relationship with Christ, doesn't mean we're gonna be perfect. It means we're still gonna be tempted to place ourselves in that place of prominence in our life. So I think there's room for each one of us to grow and making God the priority. And to do that tonight, we want to talk about how we can make God the priority in our time, our talents, and our treasures. And maybe you've seen this illustration before. I mean, imagine I had a big glass jar on this table, and next to the jar, I had some rocks, some pebbles, some sand, and some water. Now, if I tried to fill up that jar with the water first, and then going to the sand and the pebbles and the big rocks, if I put in the water first, none of it wouldn't all fit. But instead, if I took the big rocks and put them in the jar and then the small rocks, then the sand and then the water, it would all fit in the, in the jar. Maybe you've seen that illustration before. And I think it's an important parallel in our spiritual life that we need to make sure that we have the right big rocks. We need to make sure that God has that place of priority in our life. But I think sometimes we like to fill our life with those secondary things. That maybe aren't quite as important. So maybe we can start by talking about our time, which is probably the most difficult one to talk about, because if we're honest, time is our most precious commodity. We don't want to share our time. I mean, if a couple of Girl Scouts knock on my door on Saturday and, and say, uh, Mr. Sam, would you uh, like to spend $20 on cookies, or would you like to spend the next hour helping rake somebody's yard? I know what I'm going to do. And it's not just because I want the cookies. I'd rather write a $20 check than give up an hour of my time. And I think a lot of us are the same because we might all have a different amount of money in our bank account, but all of us have the same amount of time in a day. But just to talk about time as my time is a little bit selfish. It's kind of an oxymoron because the time that we have isn't ours. God's given it to us. He's placed his breath in our lungs to walk in faithfulness and obedience to live the life that he wants us to live, not the life that I want to live. So really, we're just stewards of the time that God has given to us, and we need to use our time to honor him. So what does it look like to use our time to honor God? I think Paul outlines it pretty uh, succinctly in Ephesians 5. He says this in Ephesians five sixteen or 15 and 16, look carefully then how you walk. Not as the unwise, but as the wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Interesting. Paul is saying that to make good use of our time, we've got to walk with wisdom and we've got to walk with efficiency because we're in the midst of a culture that is working to subvert the work of Jesus, is working to fight against the kingdom of God in the world. We've got to walk with wisdom. We've got to walk with efficiency, which means we've got to put God first in how we use our time. So what are some of the big rocks as you look at the way that you use your time? Maybe it means looking at your schedule. Functionally, what are the big rocks? Or if you have an iPhone, you get a screen time report every week. Sometimes it's a little sobering, isn't it? The average American spends three hours a day on their phone and three hours a day in front of the TV. You put that together, that's a full-time job every single week. Now, how much impact does Netflix, TikTok, and Instagram have on eternity? I'll let that be a rhetorical question. Putting God first with our time means that we need to be active, not passive. We need to fight to give God the best of our time, not just the leftovers. For some of us, maybe that means waking up a little bit earlier and spending time with the Lord in the morning, reading his word and and praying. This is hard for me because I love sleep and I hate mornings. That's kind of a bad combination. But for me, if I don't get that time with Jesus in the morning, (laughs) I kind of walk through my day feeling like I'm hungry even though I ate breakfast. You know what I mean? Like I'm missing something. But don't worry, there's nothing, nothing in the Bible that says thou shalt be a morning person or thou shalt have your quiet time in the morning. Maybe for some of us, the best use of our time is spending time with him after we get home from work or before we go to bed. But it's important to give him the best cut of our time. Serving God with our time means prioritizing, being involved in Christian community, being involved in church higher on the list than sports and music and friends and adventure. Serving God means that we actively look for ways to serve others. Maybe it's a neighbor that needs some help or a coworker that we can invite to young adults. Maybe it means volunteering in in kids ministry or or volunteering in VBS this summer. Maybe it means praying about going with us on our mission trip to Mexico in February of 2022. We realize, when we realize that we can serve God by serving others, then the sky is the limit for how we can use our time to honor God. So let's move on to our second T, time and our talents. God has given each of us unique talents and gifts and skills, which is pretty cool. And that's one of the things I love about our young adult family is how many different gifts and skills and talents are represented in this room tonight. And let me just pick on one group that I'm continually impressed with. It's our art teachers. Now, if I had your job, I would get fired on the first period of the first day of school because the kids that I'm teaching would be drawing horrendous stick people all year long. It'd be terrible. God did not give me that gift. And maybe God didn't give you that gift either. Maybe you have a gift of hospitality or music or speaking, technology, wisdom, working with kids. The list could go on and on and on but are you using the gifts, the skills, the talents that God has given you for his glory and for his kingdom? At our sunrise service, I shared a story about Francis Havergal. who's a hymn writer from the 19th century, wrote the hymn, Take My Life and Let It Be. Great song and a great hymn. But she had a beautiful singing voice and often used her voice with the city's philharmonic to perform. In her heart, she was convicted that, it was time for her to to hang up singing with the Philharmonic and only use her voice to honor God. So she did. And she wrote the words to the verse, the song, take my voice and let me sing always only for my king. I'm not saying it's wrong to use the gift of music for a secular purpose. But maybe there's a question we can ask. If God's given you the gift of music, If God's given you the gift of technology, if God's given you the gift of art, then why wouldn't you use that gift for his glory and for the advance of his kingdom? God's given each of us a gift that we can use. And I'm not talking about just using those gifts within the walls of a church like Highland, though that's certainly important. Maybe there's a missionary or a Christian organization or an outreach or a ministry that could benefit from a skill or talent that you have. Maybe you could use a skill to serve a family member or a neighbor. But each one of us need to be faithful to glorify God with the talents he's entrusted to us. Let's look at our third T is treasure, treasure. What's more important in our life, my treasure or God's treasure, which once again is a bit of an oxymoron because there's no such thing as my treasure. It's all God's. God owns everything. He's just entrusted things to us for us to be stewards of. And when we spend somebody else's money without their permission, with our own priorities in mind, there's a word for that. Embezzlement, stealing, possibly. Those aren't very happy words, are they? But everything that we have is God's. And think of what Jesus said in Luke 12, 34, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. For us, when we look at our budget, when we look at our credit card statement, it reveals the functional big rocks in terms of our finances and our treasure. (laughs) What would your... What would your credit card statement, what would your budget tell you about what's most important in your life? Vacation, adventure, shopping, guns and ammunition, new toys and trucks, could go on and on, right? But God deserves the first cut of our treasure, not the leftovers. And I think we know practically what this looks like. Do we only give to God after we get our tax return, after we get a stimulus check, after we have some extra money in the bank account? Or do we prioritize giving God the first cut of each paycheck that we receive? Andrew reminded us in a Sunday morning sermon not that long ago that there are countless missionaries who are raising support to serve God on the mission field. And the biggest obstacle in then getting onto the field is finances. What would it look like for even to to jump on board and support someone so that they can serve the Lord? Those are eternal investments and they are the best kind. Giving God uh, the treasures that he deserves needs to be the the big rock in terms of our finances. And then those other small rocks can follow in place. And it looks like this. We need to allow our giving to God to inform how much we spend on mortgage or rent, how much we spend on vacations, how much we spend on a restaurant budget. I think it's easy for a lot of us to to set our vacation budget or set our, our eating out budget before we decide how much we wanna give to the Lord. And it should be the other way around. It's not that going on a trip, it's not that eating out is wrong, but we need to make sure that we have the right priorities. So when we think about how we're using our time and our talents and our treasures, is there a part of our life that's out of focus? What aspects of our heart needs a reorientation? I think as we continue in the first chapter of Haggai, we'll quickly realize that God takes misplaced priorities seriously and even will bring discipline into the life Of his family when misplaced when there's misplaced priorities. Let me read starting in verse 7 of chapter 1. Thus says the Lord of hosts: Consider your ways, go up to the hills, bring wood, build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts. Because my house, the temple that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I've called for a drought on the land and on the hills and on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and on all their labors. You see what's happening here? That because the Israelites had misplaced priorities, because they didn't put God first, because they didn't build God's temple before they built their house, then in their earthly endeavors, their building materials blew away. It stopped raining down from the sky. God caused a drought to come. God disciplined them because they didn't obey. They didn't put him first. And if we flip that around, it would make sense that, you know, if the Israelites had obeyed, that if they had built God's temple first, then there wouldn't have been a a drought. Their building materials wouldn't have just disappeared if they would have walked in obedience. Now think of what that could mean for us today. Let's say that there's an individual who's toiling on a a work project, like on a rental property or a, a home they're remodeling or at a friend's house. And that project is taking precedent over going to church, over spending time in the word and in prayer. Maybe God is making that project extra frustrating, taking twice as much time because that individual isn't putting him first. Let's say for someone else, work has been a bear lately frustrating, way too much time. They're putting in all kinds of hours that are keeping away from church and Christian community, keeping away from God's word. It's the total priority in their life. Is it possible that God has made work extra frustrating, toilsome, fruitless until they put him first? Let's say there's somebody else looks notices their bank account. The money just feels like it's flying out of the account twice as fast as it ever has. But at the same time, they're not prioritizing giving to God. Is it possible that God is causing the money to disappear faster until they put him first. Now, don't hear me wrong. <laughs> I'm not preaching some convoluted version of the prosperity gospel, because that's how it works. We can't hold a prosperity theology. We can't hold a retribution theology. God does not promise automatic earthly blessing when we obey, and he doesn't pro- promise automatic and immediate earthly discipline when we disobey, which is why you look at the world around us, sometimes it seems like the wicked are the ones who have the most money. So we can't hold to a retribution theology. We can't hold to a prosperity theology. Instead, sometimes God uses our circumstances in our life to get our attention. And when something negative is happening in our life, it's possible that God could be disciplining us. And when that happens, we need to do the exact same thing that he commanded the Israelites to do. Look what he said in verse 7, consider your ways. In other words, you and I, we've got to look in the mirror. We've got to look at our hearts and ask, is there anything out of focus? Is there anything out of line? Is there any way that I'm putting God at the back burner of my life? And one of the things I appreciate about Haggai is that it has a little bit of a different tone than the rest of the minor prophets. So I feel like over and over again through the series, God raises up a prophet who tells the people that God's judgment is going to come and they don't obey and then God brings his discipline and the people get exiled. That seems to be the story every week. But that's not what happens here. Look at verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. (laughs) I love how this finishes because the people were confronted with the hard truth that their priorities were out of line. And they had a choice. Were they gonna humble themselves and repent and seek the Lord or were they gonna harden their hearts and keep focusing on their beautiful homes? And they humbled themselves. They obeyed the Lord And they started to build God's temple. And as a response, God promises them, he blesses them with the best imaginable gift, better than money, better than wealth, better than health. He says, I am with you, declares the Lord. God promises the presence of himself with his people. So when you and I encounter a text like this, that encourages us to look in the mirror and ask what's out of line in my heart is there a priority or two or three that are kind of getting the back burner when really we need to be making god the most prominent person in our life when we're convicted it gives us a choice are we going to humble ourselves before the lord and repent or are we going to harden our heart and keep living in the same way my prayer for each of us is that we'll humble ourselves that we'll repent that will turn to the Lord in humility and repentance. Because God promises that the path that we're going to be on, it's not always going to be easy, but he promises to always be with us. Let's pray. Uh, and Father, we're thankful for the small book of Haggai tonight that encourages each of us to, to look in our hearts, to ask some difficult questions. Uh, give each one of us the fortitude and the courage That when you reveal those aspects of our heart that might be out of line, the priorities that might be a little bit out of whack, uh, give us the courage to repent, to turn towards you in repentance. So we're thankful just for the opportunity to gather tonight as we take some time to dialogue in our small groups. Um, May you guide our time in our discussion. In Jesus' name, amen.